Welcome back to the Growth Equation Academy, where we dive deep and deconstruct different types of performance. Last time we ended with the passion paradox, going over obsessive and harmonious passion. And today we're going to talk about one of the tools and strategies that allows us to not only perform well, not only allow us to keep our passion in check, um, but allows us to have greater sense of well-being as well. We're going to dive into self-awareness. So self-awareness operates on two levels, and we're going to discuss them both. The first level is the day-to-day. So what happens when you are in highly challenging, potentially um, emotionally fraught situations? How do you create some space between stimulus in your response to that stimulus, because it is in that space that you can make a thoughtful, deliberate, wise decision. The second level of its self-awareness operates on is more of the long term. That's when we're talking about how do you prioritize the pursuits and endeavors in your life? How do you evaluate the trade-offs that come with trying to perform at your best at one thing while sacrificing in others? How do you zoom out and say, hey, when I look back on all this, what do I want it to look like? This is what allows you to shift course when needed, and it's also what allows you to stay the course when you might feel like shifting. So let's start with the here and now, self-awareness day-to-day. So Steve, what are we talking about here? Yep. So what we're talking about is creating space so that we have space between stimulus and response. What that means is At any given moment, it's easy to fall prey to some sort of a stressor or threat or some sort of emotional response and spiral out of control. You know, in the athletic world, we feel pain, then we panic, then we quit. In the, you know, intellectual world, we feel nervous. We jump straight to how do I get out of this? Our rational brain kind of turns off and we fall prey to this kind of amygdala dominated emotional side where our rational cognitive thinking and executive functioning doesn't work. So what we're trying to do there is create enough space so that we don't make that instant jump from either fatigue to panic or from, you know, uh, anxiety to freak out. And self-awareness is it like the awareness there is that space. It's literally saying, oh, this is emotionally fraught. I am having an immediate reaction to this. So I'm going to let that reaction happen and not necessarily act on it until I strongly consider the action that I want to take. That's the first part of it is just realizing like, oh, like this is my reptilian lizard part of the brain that's telling me fight, flight, freeze even though I'm currently not being chased by a bear, so I don't need to fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah, I mean, I think the important part is that these natural instincts or reactions are just that. They're natural, like they're ingrained for a reason. Uh, We just live in a society where we're not going to come across a lion or tiger. But you might come across a bear if you live in Asheville, especially if you live in East Asheville. But otherwise, you should be good. 
you know, I've, I've come across on a bear on a run before and I definitely froze. So uh, I know that response, but in generally, in general, in life, we're not going to, but what happens is we have these ingrained reactions. So we're going to use them for, you know, something. And we tend to use them for uh, moments where the emotion might be similar to coming across a, uh, a bear, tiger or lion or whatever have you. Uh, but we have an inordinate or a uh, hyper reaction or response to that. So you're right. What we're trying to do is just create that space, which is self-awareness. And there are several different methods that we can do. So why don't we uh, run down some of those that might help our listeners? Yeah. So the first is um, some sort of contemplative practice. The one that we're most familiar with is meditation. And um, what this basically is all about is creating some space in silence, in solitude, to just sit and watch your mind-body system have all kinds of different thoughts and feelings and just watch how you react to those naturally without giving in to any of those reactions. So see what it's like to feel an itch on your face and not scratch that itch. See what it's like to have a thought pop up in your mind about a to-do list or what you want to cook for dinner or perhaps something more serious like a dying relative and see what it's like just to let that thought be a thought. See what it's like to have a feeling, to perhaps feel pain or anxiety and not do anything about it. Just watch it, investigate it, be curious, let it rise and fall. And meditation and so many contemplative practices are as simple and as hard as that. What they're really doing is self-evident, right? It is training the mind-body system to have things happen that normally would elicit a quick response and just watching the situation unfold and not doing anything. And the transfer out of formal practice is really simple. Something in the real world happens that would normally stir you up, might lead to reaction that might be very um, slapstick in nature. It might not be wise. And it helps you to be able to create some space to feel what you're feeling, let the situation unfold, and then make a more considerate, wise decision about how to proceed. It's not saying you should never proceed. One of my favorite parables um, from, from Buddhism alleges that the historical Buddha was teaching the session that was all about not um, giving in to pain. And in the middle of the talk, in the middle of the meditation, he disappeared. And he didn't come back for like 25 minutes. And the disciples in the crowd were wondering what could be going on. They didn't want to break the meditation. And eventually someone asked the Buddha's assistant, Ananda, they said, Ananda, Ananda, where has the blessed one gone? And Ananda said, the Buddha's back was sore, so he went upstairs to lie down. So it's not that we should never proverbially go upstairs to lie down, right? He's teaching this class on like how to feel pain. It's that we should have considerate wise judgments about how we respond to more emotional things. So that's the entire point of meditation. And the great thing is uh, meditation or mindfulness or whatever spiritual practice you have uh, kind of teaches the foundation and can train that. But you can apply the same thing outside of any sort of spiritual practice. So the same thing applies of using attention to direct it towards something, being aware of it, and then practicing this non-judgmental 
non-judgmental, just sitting with it, you can apply that to uh, discomfort of any kind, right? If I'm running, it gets very uncomfortable. I can sit, I can get used to being in that discomfort. The example I like to use is whenever I've been out of shape or coming back from injury, that discomfort or that pain tends to show up really quickly. And I want to make that jump really quick to, oh my gosh, I need to stop and catch my breath. If I can train myself over time to get used to it, that alarm bell decreases and shows up later. Same thing applies to, you know, when Brad and I go on stage to give a talk. The more we can kind of experience it, not react to it, and just kind of respond, acknowledge that nervousness, that anxiety, and then navigate our way through it, we're training ourselves uh, to be able to. So it's all kind of training. Yeah, you know, the neuroscientist Judson Brewer talks about um, riding waves of urges and it can be an urge to give in to an immediate response. It can be an urge to scratch an itch. It can be an urge to smoke a cigarette, you name it. And the urges are inverted U's. So picture you in your mind, then flip it over and they start really small and then they very quickly rise. And what's interesting is if you pay attention to an urge and you just watch it, you feel what it's like, you watch your mind work. Eventually it hits this point where it crests and then slowly but surely it starts to dissipate. Um, one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in meditation and I have it often is literally having an itch and just like not scratching the itch. And if you fight the itch and you try to push the itch away, it just gets worse. And if you scratch it, it comes back a minute later. But if you can just be curious about the itch and just kind of watch it and know how it's changing perhaps in your mind, eventually the itch just fades away. So it's not to say that we never want to scratch the itch, right? Sometimes you're in a hostile workplace environment and you need to intervene. And the thing to do is intervene. This is just about helping you be wise in those decisions. In addition to this kind of separating stimulus and response, there are a couple other strategies that you can use or tools and tactics. Uh, one of which I like to call zooming or broadening your horizon. And the reason this works is pretty simple, is whenever we have a high emotional state, whenever we've got adrenaline pumping through our body or anxiety or stress hormones coming, our world tends to narrow right? It's, it's the classic fight or flight response. We narrow in on, on the here and now what is right in front of us. Well, and when we narrow, we tend to make that jump, right? So one of the ways to combat that is just zoom out, broaden things. So you can do this in a number of different ways. One that is research backed is you can actually broaden your vision. So again, if you think of high adrenaline stress narrows you into things, you tend to focus on a couple different things or a couple different items in your um, in in your vision. If you broaden out to a panoramic view and kind of see the forest instead of the trees, research shows that'll drag kind of your brain along with it, the rest of it, and give you that space or that perspective. Another yeah. kind of tactic on zooming, you can do the same thing with your inner dialogue or talk, right? 
when we use a uh, first person inner dialogue, like, oh, I can do this, I'm gonna do this, all that good stuff, it tends to narrow our world. If we use second or third person, you can do this, Steve can do this, Brad can do this. Research shows, again, it kind of broadens us out, allows us to get a little bit more space, and in fact, improves our performance and our ability to persist during difficult tasks. Yeah. um, You know, before I go into some other very concrete tactics about how to do this, um, I think it's worthwhile to have listeners go through a quick little um, exercise that'll, oh my gosh, plane. We are 100% independent at the Growth Equation Podcast. Why? Simple. Because we loathe so many of the ads that we always hear on podcasts and selling various hacks and other cockamamie stuff that rarely works. That's not what we're about here. In order to support this work, we offer a Patreon membership program. For the cost of a cup of coffee, you can support the show and get all kinds of neat stuff, such as exclusive podcasts, signed copies of our books, participation in a live book club, and a live quarterly mastermind group. To learn more and sign up, go to www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. All right, before we um, before I dive into some more practical ways to create this space, I think it's useful to go through an exercise that um, really shows just how like innate this can be. So if you take your hand and you hold up your hand in front of your face and you stare at one spot on your hand and really focus on one spot and focus there for about five seconds and then you move your hand, most people report feeling a sense of openness from contraction. So when you're staring at your hands, you're zooming in, it's very narrow, there's a contracted feeling, and when you move your hand, suddenly things open. Um, researchers have looked at this. Sometimes people even will just drop their shoulders when they open up. So you're literally doing the same thing when you go through the zooming techniques that Steve mentioned. You're just broadening your gaze, and it creates some space. Uh, another mechanism to develop self-awareness that is similar but different is called self-distancing. And what self-distancing tells you to do is to create some distance between you and yourself. Well, how do you do this? Two ways work really well. One way is to pretend that a close friend or colleague or family member is in the exact same situation as you and then give advice to that friend and then listen to the advice. That's the hard part. For me, this is the easiest to um, illustrate when talking about athletes. Anyone that's an athlete from an elite athlete to a weekend warrior has had the experience of having a pulled muscle, freaking out that they're getting off their training schedule, limping out the back door, limping down the steps to go exercise. And if you were to tell that person, well, imagine your training partner was limping down the door with that same pulled muscle, wondering whether or not they should do the training session, what would you tell that person? And without fail, you tell that person, you know, hey, Jamie, it's going to be all right. Let's take another couple days off now so you don't have to take a month off later. You're not going to lose all your fitness. The plan will adapt. Don't push through the workout. Well, what do you do? You go push through the workout. So the hard thing is actually listening. Um, So it really helps create some space to be wise. 
And then another way to do this is to pretend that you're 20, 30 years out in the future and imagine yourself as a wiser version of you looking back and what advice would you give your current you about your situation? Um, this stuff can be helpful with things as trivial as whether or not to do a workout when you're injured all the way up to whether to stay in a relationship or whether to take a new job or stay in a job. Um, so the more emotionally fraught and intense the situation is, the more important it is to bring self-awareness to it, realize, hey, this is an emotionally fraught, challenging situation, and then use some of these tools and strategies to create space, to zoom out, to create distance so that you can make as wise of an action as possible. So those are the acute ways we use self-awareness. In the last few minutes, let's zoom out and talk about the importance of self-awareness on the broader, longer-term path of excellence, of mastery, of peak performance when it comes to making prioritization in one's life and choosing what to go all in on versus what to sacrifice. Sure. So when we zoom out, I think on a broader scale, life scale, I think it's important to understand that first, we really suck at self-awareness. And that's not just, you know, me or Brad saying that. I actually think we're pretty good, but... You know, okay. I mean... No, I'm saying that as a joke. That's the crux of the, the study, I think, that you're going to mention, is that when you ask people if they're good at self-awareness and they say yes, these people are really self-aware. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. And the, and the, the research behind that or back, back that up is when they actually tested self-awareness um, or tested self-awareness on, on people's reflection of their own personality traits and behaviors, research found that the self-reported, you know, me filling out what my personality is like is actually worse than a friend doing it. So a friend is more accurate and even worse for self-awareness is that strangers observing us for just a couple minutes on certain kinds of personality um, are more accurate. So we're really freaking bad at it, you know, and, and that's not to dissuade you but it's to tell you that it takes a lot of work, okay? It takes work, and we're going to dive into some of the mechanisms or some of the manners in which we can do that work in order to uh, gain self-awareness. Yeah, and they're the same things for the acute situations, just applying them to a much longer-term um, situation. So, for example, like someone that has a meditation practice, they'll often say before a big decision, like, I'm going to go meditate on it. And if what they are doing is going and thinking about it, that's not meditating on it. Meditating on it is literally just sitting and sitting maybe for an hour and watching your mind body system do its thing, watching what thoughts come up, watching what feelings come up, creating space, seeing what you feel, and then ultimately letting that part of you that lies underneath all those thoughts and feelings, kind of some, sometimes people call it the knowing part of you or the wise observer, letting that part of you help guide you to the right decision. Going back and zooming out, one way to zoom out in, um, for longer term decisions, because you don't have to make them in the moment, is to spend some time experiencing awe. So whether that is listening to beautiful music, watching LeBron James dominate a basketball game, going to an art museum, or Steve and I's favorite, spending a day in nature disconnected from our devices, all helps us to make wise, self-aware decisions. Why is that? 
It's an ultimate irony because when we are in awe, when we are in beauty, it makes us realize how small we are. So it gets us out of our own little ego. It gets us out of our own head. And in doing so, we can see clearly. And one final thing on that um, that works well is actually thinking about our own mortality, right? So when we think about our own mortality, when we read about um, other people experiencing death or near death, what it does is it just forces us to reflect on what is truly important in our lives and what we want to fill our days with and how we want to live. And um, it forces us to gain some sort of perspective. So one of the ways Brad and I like to do this is actually through reading. Um, there's a couple great books or memoirs of people uh, tragically experiencing cancer or other um, events that, you know, where they had to face their own moral- mortality. And um, that helps a lot with gaining perspective. Yeah, it's really hard to do. No one seeks those things out. But um, after you read or listen to or watch tales of people that remind us of our own mortality, um, they very much make us clear on what are our core values, what are the things that actually matter, what's trivial, and they're a really good reset for focusing on what actually matters. Um, so we hope that this is really helpful. Um, and we will be back next week with uh, another really good meaty topic that affects everyone, which is transitions. So how do you get from A to B? And transitions, not always about progress, but it can also be about going off the path, failing, retirement, switching careers. Uh, Everyone goes through these in life and they're really important. So that's what we're going to talk about on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.